Welcome to the Cinephile Hissy Fit Podcast, the tirade-filled movie debate podcast hosted by two film critics, two cool dads, and two basking-in-the-sun teachers. I'm Don Shanahan. I'm William Johnson. Folks, we're damn glad to have you. This is all for tantrum's sake, where shared passions and high fives wash away any place for hate. In the end, we encourage you all to love what you love. But for now, the gloves are off and the hissy fit is on. This week, we're talking about the classic 1973 George Lucas film, American Graffiti, recommended by the five-star letterbox drop-in, William Johnson. Our format is this. The recommending lover goes first. That's when William Johnson will get five uninterrupted minutes to shower his praise and state his high-minded case. The hater, which is a little bit of me, you'll see, you'll see, follows with five uninterrupted minutes of his own to present their counterpoints with any manner of intellectual scorched earth. After that, we will open it up for 15 minutes of shared discussion where the hissy fit really gets chippy. Start your engines, rev it up, get your best girl, pop in a soundtrack, and get your judge's scorecard. You'll see who, who wins this one with American Graffiti. Folks, let's go. William, how you doing, sir? Doing great, doing great. I just I just got back from um, Disneyland. My first visit ah. to Disneyland. I've I've been to Disney World a number of times as a Florida resident, but uh, okay. this is my first time at Disneyland. I went to the Avengers Campus, um, mm. which is that was the primary. Um, you know, reason I went, um, yeah. and we, we had a great time. Uh, some of it was really fun. I got to see, since I'm a Marvel completist, I got to see finally the, um, essentially the short film that James Gunn made. Uh, this is topical because um, I believe this week, when this episode premieres, is the opening of uh, Suicide Squad. But James yeah. Gunn direct James Gunn directed a number of Guardian sequences for the ride Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout, which was my favorite ride there. Uh, and uh, I'm only bringing up Walt Disney because um, he he happened to have won 22 Oscars, which is mm-hmm. 22 more than American Graffiti. So correct, uh, <laughs> and and for good reason, as I will get into in my five. Oh boy! Oh boy! Okay. Okay. <laughs> all right will you are the lover you got your two minutes of marvel shown this out of the way tell us about american graffiti indeed indeed uh okay so i'm gonna start my clock believe it or not i have my own clock today Ooh, um, i'll take care of the bell my man all right so uh american graffiti i am a latecomer to this i'm not gonna lie um george lucas um as many people do uh i have a complicated love-hate relationship with the man um, I think that he is a brilliant storyteller, not a great screenwriter. Um, you know, w- when you look at the best Star Wars film, Empire Strikes Back, it was not written by George Lucas. The story was by him. Uh, that's ver- that's one of the reasons why it is the best Star Wars film. Um, but the man created Indiana Jones, for Christ's sake. I mean, this guy knows how to how to tap into something. Uh, maybe he just doesn't know how to put it into words. And that's okay, because if he has somebody else to do it for him, um, you get something great, like, you know, Empire Strikes Back and Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, but uh, so because of the prequels of Star Wars, I was a little uh, perturbed to dig into George Lucas's filmography. It's just something that I grew up with Star Wars. Um, 
for whatever reason, I never saw his other films outside of that, you know, the Star Wars oeuvre. Um, but something was calling to me. Um, one of my favorite subgenres of film is the hangout film. Um, I also adore a film that takes place in one day and is so well produced that it feels like you can't tell what year the movie was made in the, in the year it's listed that it was made or the year in which the story takes place. Uh, some of my favorite all time favorite, you know, hangout movies that have that kind of mix of, you can't really tell when this was made is dazed and confused. Richard Linklater's amazing film, which I still get confused was not made in the seventies, even though it was made in the nineties um, because it was so, um, you're, you're so enveloped in the time period and what they're presenting. Uh, same thing with um, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which we talked about on our very first episode. Mm-hmm. So American Graffiti um, is that kind of film. It kind of hits all the checkboxes on paper for me. Uh, it's a hangout film. Uh, it has uh, it's set in a in a more of a romanticized time period. Um, and uh and it takes place in one night. So uh, off to a good start, I decided, you know what? I have to see this classic. It's on a lot of people's lists. It was, uh, uh, I'm also in a new wave, uh, a, a Hollywood new wave period right now. Where I'm kind of revisiting or visiting for the first time a lot of films from the 70s and late 60s. Um, and I got to say, I was utterly charmed by this film. Um, for one, even though George Lucas wrote the screenplay with two other people, it's very clear in the making of that he kind of came up with the concept, wrote a couple of basic things, but let the writers do the writing. Um, but what he also did, which is something that he did definitely did not do on the Star Wars prequels, was he kind of let his actors, which is an impressive troupe of actors, um, a lot of great young upcoming talent, um, uh, very few, um, you know, uh, like legends in the field or whatever. And we're talking about Cindy Williams, Ron Howard, Richard Dreyfus, Paul LeMatt, and of course, one of my all-time favorites, Harrison Ford, in a very early role here, uh, before he would become kind of a uh, hallmark of Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas Productions with um, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and Apocalypse Now, and uh, The Conversation. Um, just a great cast that kind of gets to go off on its own kind of... Uh, do its own spiels, but it, like I said, it, I think that the, <coughs> excuse me, I think the winning formula here is that it is so uh, engrossing in terms of putting you in the time period of 1962 that you can't tell that the film was actually made in 1973. It's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's very, I, I'm trying to think of the word I'm looking for. It's just just really takes you into that world and you don't want to leave it. It's that one night you're in that world. You can put it on in the background and kind of feel like you're comfy and at home. Great actors. And dare I say great director um, who really tapped into his childhood with this film. Uh, and in the end, that's what, that's what George Lucas has really done. When you think about Indiana Jones, star Wars and American graffiti, he taps into childhood pleasures that you can still enjoy as an adult I know I kind of went off on George Lucas for a little bit, so I'm going to end my five minutes here. Well, that was nicely done. I tell you what, I know I come into this in the hater slot here, but 
this is admittedly one of my mother's favorite films and condolences to your mom. My mom is still with me and she she's one of those ladies of that era, you know, who she just turned 70 this year, who who raves about this movie. In 1973, she would have been 22 years old and this would have been the prime of her, you know, just coolness era as a Midwestern person. And then obviously in 1962, she would have been 11. I don't know how much she would have remembered the car hops and the hot rods and all that, but this is something she loves. And we were an oldie station listener all throughout my childhood. If it wasn't country, it was oldies. So this this movie is near and dear to the Shanahan family heart, at least a little bit. I come at this movie, I don't want to say indifferent, but I respect it on a, a couple levels. I respect that it's the Hangout movie and and pre, you know obviously predates Linklater with all that. And I respect the the diegetic use of music and the and the idea of it going back it's 11 years to look at a bygone era, especially when you consider I'm a socialist teacher. I can kind of play this card here a little bit. America in 1973 wasn't a very great place. You know, like if you go backwards, it's Vietnam. It's the Democratic National Convention and Civil Rights of 68. It's Martin Luther King's assassination. It's John F. Kennedy's assassination. All that stuff happened after the events of this 1962 set film. So to be able to have Lucas, you know, use his creativity and use his, I hate to say nostalgia because we overuse that word a lot today, Mm -hmm. but to have him go back and tell this really, you know, really cute and really adorable and still in a couple of places, really meaningful one night only or one wild night movies, it, it plays well and it works and it works all right. The hard part for me is, and as great as it is, because it's this launching pad for different things. It's, it's, it's to me, I, I don't like to use the word overrated. I know it gets tossed around a lot. We throw it out in college basketball chants and all that. But on the AFI's list of 100 years, 100 films, you know, 100 movies, American Graffiti is number 62. It's ahead of Network, African Queen, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Unforgiven, Clockwork Orange, Saving Private Ryan, Shawshank Redemption, Bush Cassidy and Sundance Kid, Silence of the Lambs, All the President's Men, Forrest Gump, and a zillion other things between number 63 and, and 100. And I don't think this movie is anywhere close to being better than those other 38 films. Not even close. When you go to the 100 Years 100 Laughs, I don't even call this movie much of a comedy. This is a classic. I know we didn't use the term in 73, but this is a dramedy because you have the the heavy themes of growing up in angst and all that. But I'm not laughing out loud at this movie. This movie is number 43 on the AFI list of 100 Years 100 Laughs. It is just after Big, and at number 43, it is ahead of a whole bunch of things that include far better films like City Slickers, Fast Times at Richmond High, Fargo, for goodness sakes, Bull Durham, Many Professor. There's just a zillion things to me, Beverly Hills Cop, that are just better than this movie. Is it very good for what it is? Is it a great nostalgia trip? Yes. Is it that level of all-time benchmark five-star thing? Absolutely not. Cute as a bell, uh, fun as a button, but it is not a top 100 film on that kind of level. And I, like I said, I appreciate the effort, and I, and I, I completely respect and understand that it took this great success to kind of establish this trope of the Hangout movie, likely before mo- most Hangout movies came around. And Shout out to Feelin' Film Podcast with Aaron White. About three years back, he and I did this movie for a little series we were doing on the side called Connecting with Classics, where we really broke this movie down a lot. And and both of us kind of were at that place where it's it's in the Hall of Very Good, but it shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. 
And that's how I feel about it even still now. I, I didn't rewatch it. I know this movie too well and too great. I love the playlist and the and the soundtrack of songs and the whole diegetic thing to it. And I know it was, you know, as a scoreless movie, it plays in a lot of different levels of being different from other stuff, especially with that Hollywood new wave you're talking about. But I yeah, you dropped the five stars in this. This is like a three for me. Like I said, Hall of Very Good, just not the Hall of Fame. And for that, I don't even need the other 25 of my seconds. I'll do this back and forth in the 15 minutes, but I'll stop my little bell now. Folks, in the meantime, we will break for a short announcement from our non-corporate partners and friends. Hey, this is Charlie, Triple C, from Brevity Box, a new and interesting podcast from the Ruminations Radio Network. If you're a fan of podcasts, we have a lot of great content to offer. Come check out our diverse group of podcasts and hosts at ruminationsradionetwork.com. All right, Will, those are my five minutes. How do you feel about this? Well, I... Uh... I, I love the story about your mom because um, mm-hmm. she would have been the same age as um, Mackenzie Phillips in this film because Mackenzie Phillips was 12 when she made this. So she would have been kind of that maybe like you said, she like that character um, is the one who kind of gets to be the bigger kid just for the night because she kind of sneaks into the, the hot rod guy's car, you know, the uh, for the evening. Um so, you know, I think that's cool that you know, your mom got to experience it that way. It, it's the same kind of thing, uh, both with my mom and my dad. My mom got to basically be Sally in Mad Men. Um, she got to kind of live, relive through the 60s and 70s through Sally's eyes on Mad Men. And my dad was, um, uh, for Dazed and Confused, he was in high school when those kids were in high school. So it was kind of like a, a flashback for him. So mm-hmm. I totally get that prior generation. Um, yeah. And it, and, and it happens for me too. I was a senior in high school when American Pie came out and they were seniors in high school. So I kind of followed right, right. Their, traje- their trajectory. Oh, so sure. I think, so I think that's another reason why it has that classic status is because there was a lot of people in that time, especially the younger generation that was doing, mm-hmm. that came out with the American new wave. Yeah. Um, you know, And the they, disillusionment of, I, I, I keep thinking about that 1973 time where America likely needed that breath of fresh air of reminding themselves what, what it was like 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's as if we, it's as if somebody in 2008 made a movie about 1997 and how, you know, how fun and cool it was for whatever it was, 97, you know, friends. And like you said, <laughs> American pie and some of those things from 1999 and then, you know, two years before nine 11. You know, where, where, how fun were we in the Bill Clinton years compared to the George Bush years of war on terror and the fear and the, you know, the jingoism and all the, you know, all the phobias that propped up in this country. If someone made a cool movie like that, I guess super bad would be the closest thing. But even that's, you know, taking place in its current era. It's not a throwback, you know, period piece. Yeah. Well, and the, the reason why I compare this a lot to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is for two mm. reasons. Um, one is because, I mean, uh, this is something that is maybe was very obvious to viewers who had seen the film, but since I had just watched it a couple weeks ago, I was amazed. I was like, wow, Tarantino lifted a lot from this film yes, in terms of that. Um, 
however, also what I wanted to say is, is that both of those films deal with a time of quote unquote innocence ending because of some kind of new event. Um, Mm -hmm. What I like about American graffiti is that it does capture this romantic element. I'm sure everything in 1962 wasn't peachy keen. No, no, no. But what it does kind of, it it kind of puts in like um, bookends to certain parts of history. So for American graffiti, it's the eventual Vietnam war Mm -hmm. um, and the death of JFK and Camelot. Uh, Those are kind of the events that would, you kind of know when you're watching this film, you go, okay, so these kids, the ones that get out of town, you know, maybe, uh, I think in the end credits, you actually see. Oh yeah. um, The classic end credit stinger. Yeah. One of the, uh, one of the male characters, I think the nerdy one um, Mm -hmm. ends up going to Vietnam and being killed. Um, So it's kind of a a dampener on, uh, on the film Mm -hmm. what is mostly a feel good film. But I think that's kind of the point. And once upon a time in Hollywood is the same way with 1969 being, you know, when Easy Rider came out and things were starting to change in the film industry, the, the whole right. idea of what an actor was was changing. And then, of course, the murder um, of what's her name? Sharon, <laughs> um, Sharon Tate. Yeah. Sharon Tate. That kind of changed this kind of idea of celebrity that they were not untouchable anymore. Mm-hmm. They could be murdered. So I, I kind of like that these two films have that aspect to them. And that's why I give them sure. five stars because. I, not only do I feel like I'm in that place in in American Graffiti's case, 1962, and at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, 1969, mm-hmm. but I really, but it, it's also universal. Uh, like when I'm watching American Graffiti, I can kind of see, I think back to I'm 39 now, mm-hmm. but I think back to the time when I was in high school and there were still those guys that were hanging out with oh, yeah. high school kids that maybe should have moved on. There was. <laughs> Those kids that, uh, you know, were, uh, I went to a very elite prep school for high school. Um, so, uh, not to brag, but I'm just saying that like, it was very tough to get in. It was very tough to stay in. And some Mm -hmm. of the, and I was, I was like one of the lower students (laughs) in terms of uh, grades and, and opportunities and things like that. Uh, some of the smartest kids at that school, you know, the ones that made it all four years at 4.2 GPAs. You know, some of them didn't do anything, you know, right. and, and th- there's that whole idea of wasted youth either by choice or by circumstance. In this case, sure. you have you have the um, and I'm terrible with with names, but it's the kind of the hot rod driver, the guy who's like the best drag race driver. He's kind of the Matthew McConaughey of this movie. Yeah. You know, he's old. He's kind of stayed in town. Yeah. That Paul um, Lamont character. Right. Right. Paul right. John Lamont, Milner. Yeah. He. um obviously has kind of overstayed his welcome is kind of missing his shot at life. But then you also have uh, the nerdy character who mm-hmm. will eventually lose his life in Vietnam uh, through no choice of his own. Um, right. You know, so there's, I kind of like that. So even though the film is lighthearted, I agree with you. It's not a laugh out loud comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, there, dramedy. I, I, I would say a dramedy. There is a, what I like about it is, is that you can put it just like Dazed and Confused. You can put it on in the background and get a nice oh, chuckle, yeah. chuckle out of it. But I agree. when you sit down and watch it, you can get so much more, both from that time period, the time period it was made, and the time sure. period in which you're watching it. I think that's why it's a five star film because yeah. it is a, it is effective in three decades. I, I see you there. 
Now, since you open up the, you know, since you open up the Trump, you know, in this game of Euchre we're playing on this show here to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm-hmm. I will take this movie to that movie every day of the week and twice on Sunday because these are good regular people and not superstardom and rewritten fairy tales where Sharon Tate lives and all that bullshit that Tarantino does, which on its own merit is the fun nostalgic fairy tale and, and that, that trip into that era and obviously a huge appreciation for that era. I'll take this movie to that movie because it feels 800 times more genuine. No, character wise. I agree with you. I, yeah. I think that's, that's always been a problem with Tarantino. Anyway. Oh yeah. 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 Is, but that's why we love him and that's all right. Right. So yeah, I, I go to once upon a time in Hollywood more for the experience of hanging out with some, larger than life characters but yeah if i if i really want to feel something even though i can't remember their names i Mm -hmm. i have more of a connection um uh with the characters from american graffiti in terms of emotions um the the fact that um the fact that richard dreyfus and ronnie howard he's credited as ronnie in this Mm -hmm. um the fact that they kind of switch roles throughout the night Yes. Um, it's one of my favorite aspects of the film because Dreyfus is the one who's kind of like, eh, I don't think I'm going to leave. And, and you know, um, Ronnie Howard is very much like, yes, we've got to leave. This is going to be awesome. And then they switch. And I really enjoyed that. Um, but, you know, it deals with, I mean, I go through this list of topics that it deals with. I mean, um, Blink-182, the pop punk band, wrote this mm-hmm. really Mm-hmm. wrote this really interesting song called going off to call going away to college on their seminal album uh enema of the state and what it was about was it was like what happens when these kids who are in love with each other in high school they go off to college and separate you know like sure it's, it's not necessarily because they want to they still like each other or love each other depending on how serious your relationship is yeah um but it's just this weird circumstance where it's suddenly like hey you gotta leave and i, I like that it addresses that with all the couples in this because some of them don't want to yeah. break up and some of them do. And, you know, it, it doesn't shy away from sexuality. I mean, it, it takes, it does it in a George Lucasy way. So that's not, right. overt, and it, but well, no, but it also does it in a 1973 couldn't make it today kind of way too. You got the 12 year old girl on the racer's car where, you know, that's, that's a red flag in today's day and age. Well, not only is it a red flag, but if couldn't you guys, get off the page today, if you guys, uh, just researching this film. If you guys really want some disturbing stories, just read Mackenzie Phillips' Wikipedia. That'll, oh, that'll, yeah, yeah. That will uh, that will disturb you for. That's for all true. Time. That's true. Um, no, actor-wise, I'm with you. There's there's good journeys here from good folks that that play. I don't want to say play the archetypes, but and I think maybe the end credits make them into archetypes. Like, oh, that's the guy that made it. That's the guy that didn't. That's the guy that died. And and before the end credits, you know, epilogue, little uh, epilogue notes. These characters, the 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 jeopardies of what they are going to be, are in doubt all night, and that is that is fascinating. And Ron Harder was a legit nineteen making this movie. Richard Dreyfus was the oldest looking seventeen year old in the world at the age of twenty six making this movie. Yeah, he's got no business being in here. But it, and it, I but I digress with something like that. No, I I admit as the uh, I admit I as I don't I was going to ask you this question kind of the close you know as we get closer to the as we finish this piece here, mm-hmm. which high schooler were you? Now I, I'm that guy who I, I I had my high school girlfriend junior year didn't have a girlfriend senior year I did have a car and to me a car was 
was wings, you know, to be able to get around mm-hmm. and do things. And, and I can't, I went to a small town, Midwestern town where we cruised and we did, we had our scene for all that. And not that I thought my car could ever get chicks, but I, but I thought it could. Mm-hmm. And, but I, but I admit I'm, my mom is that person who never left town, you know, still lives in, you know, still at least until this past year where she retired, mm-hmm. lived in the same town she grew up in, graduated in, you know, what, you know, has classmates and friends and does all the, does all the hometown things. She'd be one of those girls in this movie. I'm the guy who I guess counts as the black sheep where, you know, I, I, I had high hopes. I, you know, was that guy who went to college first in my family to really put, you know, to kind of do the only person in my family to kind of do that other than my mom who did college, but then went right back to her hometown. And then, yeah, I'm the city slicker now who, cause I'm a gravel road country boy who lives in Chicago doing podcasting and movie reviews. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I teach kids of color and all that. So I, I, I don't know what my epilogue would look like and which character I am. Part of me is Ronnie Howard, where I'm like, you know, trying to figure out the, what do I do with my relationships? Do I really want to come home? Part of me is Charles Martin Smith as the, the nerdy guy in the glasses who wasn't going to score chicks and needs to figure out the, you know, floating between groups and all that. Which one were you? If you like, we're talking about identifying, which one were you? Well, I definitely wasn't Paul Lamatt. Um, no, me neither. I wish I was Bob Falfa, Harrison Ford, because you did. Yeah, me too. Who doesn't want to be Harrison Ford? Right. Um, because you know what? He loses that drag race in the end, but you know what? He's still Harrison Ford in the end. You're damn so, right. Um, I'm going to say I definitely wasn't Ronnie Howard because Ronnie Howard is more of the um, uh, he's kind of the uh, big man on campus. Like he seems mm-hmm. to be the most popular kid in terms of like everybody knows him. Everyone wants to hang out with him. All the girls want to date him kind yeah. of thing um i would say i was a mixture of richard dreyfus um because richard dreyfus was kind of a he was popular but like he also mm-hmm. was like friends with the teacher and he wasn't like so popular that like people were like oh you gotta stay in town or you know hopefully. yeah yeah he was kind of middle of the road like in high school um everyone knew who i was but I wasn't like man about town. So I'd say it's a little bit of that, you mm-hmm. know, a, a little bit of Richard Dreyfus and definitely, definitely uh, Terry or Charles Martin Smith, uh, the yeah, nerdy yeah. character. I definitely was a lot of him just because of my nerdy interests. I, I was in the heavy metal club, but I also loved science fiction and Star Trek. Mm-hmm. I used to write sci-fi stories for the, for the, um, the newspaper, uh, for the school newspaper. And so I kind of had these, eccentric tastes that a lot of people don't want to admit another thing about my high school just so you know is that it was an all boys high school so oh so it's so it's a lot of testosterone a lot of people wanting Uh to be tough and cool and i definitely i mean at least richard dreyfus i I think he had girl like he had lots of cool girls that Mm -hmm. wanted to hang out with him across the street from my school was the all girls school and so all right. that's how we did all the dances and stuff. We coordinated with them, but, <laughs> nice. but, but you had some, some boys that were able to just walk over to the other campus and be fine. Mm-hmm. You had me that was entirely nervous, more like the nerdy character, because I was like, Oh my God, I'm going into the, I'm going into the estrogen layer, you know, like I didn't know what to right. do with myself. So I would say a mixture of Dreyfus and Charles Martin Smith okay, uh, okay. would be my, it would be my thing there. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up is one thing I love about film history is I, I love the idea that something in a film, uh, that you really don't think about, um, ends up 
like changing the landscape of film. So like uh, in, in ways that you don't think of. So for instance, like um, I was telling uh, a lady friend of mine that um, in back to the future two, uh, you know, that uh, what's his face, uh, Crispin Glover was not in the film. They used footage of him. And because mm-hmm. they did that without his permission, that created the whole image rights and that created a whole new system of um, how to use footage of you and your, in your likeness and things like that. Um accordingly according to uh at least the imdb trivia so let's see how accurate right. that is but you know one thing about watching older movies is the credits are like 10 seconds long oh yeah totally um according to the trivia anyway george lucas it says here george lucas was unable to pay all of his crew members so some of them were given <laughs> screen credit in lieu of payment oh, um so at the time it says that only department department heads received screen credit but now that so many crew members got credit, that is why closing credits now last so long, because now it is tradition for what George Lucas started to give everyone in the company and everyone in a unit credit. Yeah. Now. So I think that's pretty like I, I okay. like that idea that that's that's something that that goes on is that this film uh, also, much like Easy Rider, uh, for, uh, decided not to have a score. I dig uh, that about this movie. Uh, yeah, so so the fact that it's a wall of sound essentially mm-hmm. is um, really intoxicating because, like I said, you can it, it feels like you're listening to a Wolfman Jack, a night mm-hmm. with Wolfman Jack because I know it's just wall to wall music um, and interludes, and I guess they were real interludes from the Wolfman Jack show. Um, so those were real callers from 1962 and things like that. So. Yeah. Now, Oscar-wise, just to kind of put the closing note on this, yes, this movie won zero Oscars. It was nominated for uh, Best Picture, nominated for five, lost to lost Best Picture to The Sting, um, and it was also up for Best Director, Best Screenplay based on, Best Original Screenplay, Best Supporting Actress for Candy Clark, Best Film Editing. It did win the Best Picture Musical or Comedy at the Golden Globes, which is surprising to me because you're up against The Sting. But uh, yeah, it's it's. I wouldn't give an Oscar to this anywhere. I guess I editing is very tempting because the way you have to take these vignettes and put them together, it's definitely different than I, probably something like Distinguished probably won back in the day. And um, have you seen? I, I'm guessing the answer is no. This movie has an awful 1979 sequel that kind of takes the notes of this epilogue and turns them into actual stories, where you have the post-Vietnam thing and the older Ronnie Howard thing. Have you seen more American Graffiti? I have not, and I have no interest in seeing it. Ooh. Um, Even with the five-star rating of this? Come on. Because to me, it feels like uh, it's... It, and we'll go back to the film, contemporary films of this era. It's like mm-hmm. Easy Rider, Another Ride, or more Butch Cassidy and Sundance, or... Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it just feels Every like... Every Jaws equal, right. Yeah, it feels like they're trying to capitalize on mm-hmm. something... I like the idea on paper for more sure. American graffiti, um, but uh, I don't think it's something I'm going to pursue anytime soon. Yeah. Um, especially because it doesn't have the involvement of the creators. I think this is very much a George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola production. And I think yeah. that uh, comes Coppola, through. Coppola helped bankroll this as a friend and inner circle person of Lucas. And, and ever since, Coppola's been in that tight group with Lucas where, you know, Coppola is one of the first guys Lucas ever shows his movies to. He's kind of in that inner circle and the money, because this made a great amount of profit 
Oh, the yeah. money from this that's money from this helped Lucas establish what would be Lucasfilm, Skywalker Sound, and Industrial Light and Magic. So without the success of this movie, we very likely would not have Star Wars, and I will tip my hat to that. Well, back to your Oscar thing real quick. Uh yeah. I think I think that th- traditional film people did not uh-huh. know what to do with sound at this point. Um that's so fair. I, I think that the fact that I think the fact that it didn't have a score threw some people off. But to me the you know, the use of engine noise, mm-hmm. uh, uh, music, the uh, uh, input of Wolfman Jack segments, right. the uh, dual dialogue segments. I think this should have got at least some sound nominations. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I mean, you can, if you do the, I, I, editing is the right place for me because you're merging a bunch of things together. And that's where mm-hmm. I'll be like, ooh, yeah, that's a good spot for it. I mean, the other, I mean, for best picture, yeah, the sting is the sting, and you have the exorcist up there. That was definitely not going to happen. What did it lose in editing here? I'm going to look up here on Wikipedia because I'm I'm in that spot here. So, best sound, which wasn't oh, best sound went to the exorcist, and that that makes sense. And then best editing went to yeah, because it always matched best picture all the back in the day. It went to the sting. So, yeah, all right, all right. Well, I will say that um, Candy Clark, who was mm-hmm. nominated. Uh, what an interesting year for her in that category. I don't think she necessarily deserved an Oscar nomination. I right. I, th- I think with ensemble cast, it's very tough. See, mm-hmm. see, mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings, where all the acting is phenomenal, oh, yeah. but you can't single one out. Right. Um, but uh, so the winner that year was Taylor O'Neill, who was ten. Mm-hmm. Yep, for Paper uh, Moon. Linda Blair was nominated. She was only like 12. That's right. Uh, you had Madeline Kahn, and then mm-hmm. I, I believe you had um, Sylvia Sidney, who was kind of an old school at that point. I mean, she right. was, she had been around since, you know, she was around in the 30s and 40s. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so you kind of had the old guard, really new guard. Right. <laughs> and then you had, you had this one. Um, but yeah. so, so an interesting I, year. I think between Blair and O'Neill, the right person won because those are Paper Moon's really good. It's a good showy part for a kid actor, and sure. and of course Linda Blair is iconic at this point for Exorcist. What else you got for closing thoughts before we hit the outro, man? Um, I'll leave well, it to you. You're the lover. Yeah, I, uh, I I am always frustrated with you because I feel like you don't appreciate the hangout film i think oh no i do like days confused is a five for me because it does everything that the days confused does everything this movie does but better with far more interesting characters Mm. i'm just saying i'll take between the two i'll i'll take days confused here we go again every day of the week and twice on sunday well see here's the thing i grew up with days and confused so i would prefer it as well just because of the comfort food that it provides sure but but all the three hangout films that i mentioned i've given all those five stars so it's okay 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 no i mean where are you at with stuff like can't hardly wait and go and stuff like those 90s ones in our era yes even super bad they are and super bad yes uh they are a cut above for me because of the subgenre. I'm a fan of that subgenre. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like the night of stuff. Like training yeah, day, training day fits into that subgenre. It's a oh, one sure. day only thing. Oh yeah. Um, 
I love that subgenre. So for me, Can't Only Wait is not like a great film, mm-hmm. but it is a comfort film because I like for for some reason, and and I I really like the idea. And if you can do it well, just like Linklater does in Days and Confuse, and George yeah. Lucas does here, and Tarantino does in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh if, boy! If you that's can, not a one day. If if you can really, I know that's not a one day, but it's a hangout no. film. It's, yeah, different genre it, there because then if, I'm going to a different place. But what I'm saying is, with that is like the slice of life kind of stuff. If you can do that mm-hmm. to the point where you feel like you're in that world, even for two hours, three hours, yeah, and it takes you out of your current, you know, hell of life. <laughs> sure, I I will. That's why I give it five stars because when I watched American Graffiti, finally, you know, it transported me. And and okay. that's and that's why Lucas is so successful because when you watch an Indiana Jones film, mm-hmm, you're, mm-hmm. it feels like you're watching an adventure serial. When you're that's watching true. Star Wars, you feel like you're watching yeah. an adventure serial. American Graffiti is the same thing. It, so oh, he molds that well. If I'm exactly. picking, uh, if I'm picking a top one wild day or night movie, it's Ferris Bueller's Day Off, hands down. Chicago bias for sure. Yeah, you definitely got a Chicago bias on that one. Yeah. but no, uh, that that for me is the. What a day. And that's that's all fun, all flight, all fancy. It's it's the best. But that's me. All right. We did good, man. Thanks for coming on for this one. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna send us out. So mm-hmm. I want all of you to follow us on Twitter at Cinephile Fit and on Facebook at Cinephile Hissy Fits Podcast. We're also on Instagram. Don runs the Instagram a little bit more than I do, so he's gonna show you some cool stuff about like press screenings and stuff. That's right. I'm on, I'm on Twitter usually just going off on a bunch of bullshit. Um, also, find us on Letterboxd. Uh, I'm putting a lot of Letterboxd stuff together. Uh, so uh, you guys can enjoy that content. Um, thank you so much for your captive audience and social media participation. Cinephile Hizzy Fits is a 25YL media podcast. It's brought to you by RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. Please visit, rate, review, and subscribe. If you enjoyed this show, we have more where that came from with interesting hosts, and we will have some wonderful guests coming up. We can confirm. Um, so look forward to that. We are available on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you find your favorite shows. 